You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. This is episode 169 of the Healthy Critters Radio on Horse Radio Network. Healthy Critters Radio is brought to you by Biostar US. Find them online at biostarus.com. On today's show, we discuss ways to rehabilitate the equine stifle. Critter of the show is the Texas white-tailed deer. In Critter Nutrition, we share what it is to lose a beloved animal. And in Coffee Clutch, we ask, if you could pick a celebrity or famous person to be your small animal vet, who would that be? Join us. Tigger. And I'm Patty. And I am Coach Jen. Thanks for joining us here on Healthy Critters Radio. We get together twice a month and chit chat about all things critter and all things healthy, whether it be the global view or the very, very detailed one. And uh, this is the part of the show where we catch up on what's been going on lately, ask each other random questions. And again, Tigger and Patty showed up unprepared. setting you up yeah i think i think you do that on purpose just to make me do a little bit of work so i don't sit around i can't sit around (laughs) and eat bonbons a whole show yeah that's like something you would do sit around that's something i would definitely do so (laughs) you're this is going to be one of my famous quiz famous quiz questions and it was inspired because i just yesterday got around to sending in my entry for an equine trail sports competition, which combines obstacle courses with trail riding. That's basically what it is. It's judged, but you also have to go on a trail ride for six miles. But it is not timed like an endurance race, which is what I usually do. And Scooter, PT Scooter, our hackney pony, has now officially been entered into his very first competition ever in his whole lifetime. And Nigel, the big lumbering oaf who has a propensity for having meltdowns when going to competitions got entered into something just for practice. Our goal is to stay on and not get anybody else tossed off. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, uh, yeah. Okay. Good goal. Good goal. Yes. Excellent. So I'm, I'm looking at this from Nigel's point of view. This is a practice competition for him. We're not there to compete. We're there to exist and be content. So that got me to thinking Tigger, you do a lot of things with your dogs. And among those things are competitions. Do you ever enter dogs or do you think it's a good idea to enter dogs into competitions as more of a practice versus you're there to compete and win i think it's always a practice (laughs) (laughs) always a practice is that something Mm. that dogs new to competition or young dogs would typically do in the types of competitions that you do with your with your aussies well i um i haven't done competition in a while um my biostar life has (laughs) interfered with uh going to dog shows and doing rally which is what i like to do um but i i know some dogs young dogs um that are you know starting to do agility 
or have been in agility training and they'll do what I would consider like prep shows. Mm-hmm. You know, well, they'll like run a course and time it and it's not sanctioned. It's not registered. It Like a schooling show. Yes, exactly. Okay. okay. So that, that, that exists in the doggy universe. Patty. Yeah. How about you yep. with, with the horses? Is that something that is part of your regime with students or horses where you say, okay, we're going to go to competition X, Y, and Z. And we're going to go in this class and we're just there to practice. Um, absolutely. Um, where it'd be schooling shows or something like that. But what I like to do more currently um, to try to be more cost-effective for people is set up simulation of what you would be doing. Like for instance, I have a girl that's going doing her first pre-St. George. So that requires um, putting on a long tailcoat. And um, so I want her to put the tailcoat on. So the horse um, knows that it's there because believe it or not, that can scare them if they're not used to feeling that coming from the rider. So I, I had her go through her uh, test with her coat on. So I do, yeah. So I do a lot of that or we'll go to a different place just to get the horses off the properties so people can get used to what their reactions and stuff. The hubbub. So yeah. 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 I do that. I do that a lot. Yeah. And I imagine with your horses, because when you get a young horse in, they are in that environment of a competition barn going to the actual mm-hmm. competition itself is probably less jarring than a horse that maybe lives at home where things are peaceful and quiet and the same every single day. Do you think? Yeah. 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 I mean, my, the barn that I'm at right now, it's only eight stalls, but I have, you know, I teach about 12 to 14 lessons a day or between horses and riding and whatever. So there is some activity, but it's still pretty low key. So um, there, it has been a little bit surprising to um, some of our the horses that are normally here all the time going mm-hmm. to shows because they're like, "Hey, wait, why are there so many horses? What's going on here? <laughs> why? What happened? Why here? is not like what? You know? So yeah. um, that, and that's part of the reason why I, I like going to other people's barns and you know around the area and saying, mm-hmm. "Hey, can we come and school at your place?" to get the horse off the farm because it really does help. And it helps the rider too, because, you know, we keep thinking about, you know, how the animals, but you know, the riders get pretty amped up. up. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So Tigger, I'm going to go back to you now. Um, You were a competitor in eventing and dressage for many a year. Yeah. What in your experience is the most common thing that people forget to um, anticipate when they take their horse any horse, whether it's a young horse or an old horse, that horse to its very first horse show. What do you think people go, <gasps> you look at them and go, you know, they forgot to practice X, Y, or Z. Practice? Well, expose them to practice too. Cause you always hear about what well, you got to practice. For example, you have to wear different clothing. Well, especially a long tailed coat. Cause that touches the horse. Whereas a horse coat that doesn't have tails, doesn't touch the horse, things like that. Is there something that whenever you are competing a lot, you would look at somebody who's obviously brand new to this and you would say to yourself, self, I, that person really could have benefited by doing practicing this or exposing the horse to that so that their day was a lot less grief and a lot less that girl. I think that warm up can be a, a big issue. Really interesting. Mm. Horses that yeah. aren't used to horses being, you know, <gasps> yes. crossing when in you, front of them or when behind them. you get in the warm-up arena, there's horses going every which direction. Everywhere. 
And there, you know, there are riders that are very much, especially if they're on upper level horses, feel they've got the right of way. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can be intimidating. Yeah. So I think the warm up for me, it's not so much the, you know, equipment. Right, 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 right. Well, that makes sense, though, because we tend to focus on the equipment because we do. And you, that's an excellent point. And I have, having ridden many, many, many OTTBs over the year, over the years, those were my main competition horses were invariably off the race, off the track thoroughbreds can be really set off by horses yeah. coming at them as well as horses passing them. That really sets them off. Yeah. And Nigel is one of those horses. He has a extremely difficult time coping with the activity in a warm-up arena. And every time he takes a break from going away to competitions, because I'll go to a couple and then months and months will go by before I go to a couple more. I kind of have to start over with that whole uh-huh. thing. <laughs> like, did you forget how that works? Remember we did this six months ago? No, mom, I'm sorry. I forget how this works. Can I please stand in the corner and cower? <laughs> interesting <laughs> stuff there we go well see that's what happens when when tigger and patty don't bring a question to the table <laughs> mm-hmm. damn us yeah but yeah that was dog on you guys but in our round table today a very interesting topic and i can't wait to hear tigger's the stifle the stifle rehabbing the stifle uh what happens yep. where does it happen etc yeah Uh, we're now at Roundtable, and the topic is rehabbing the equine stifle. And I found this um, article on thehorse.com. It's from a presentation given to the British Equine Veterinary Association Congress, held September 7th through 10th in Liverpool this year. And it was uh, presented by Jody Daglish of the Newmarket Equine Hospital in the UK. Uh, So she starts with tissue healing within the stifle can take up to a year and occurs in three phases. The first is inflammatory. This is an acute vascular response that occurs in three to five days immediately following the injury. The second stage is the reparative stage and it lasts two to six weeks. Here, collagen production and matrix synthesis occurs. The goal of this phase is to promote tissue healing in a way that will help the horse have full use of the injured joint. The third phase is minimizing the risk of injury and maximizing function. And that's kind of the remodeling phase. So the her program is um, to, you know, you might have to do some surgical debridement or use some biological therapies like stem cell and IRAP, et cetera, et cetera. And it's important that to heal soft tissue, especially in the stifle, that you begin with hand walking, starting at five minutes twice daily and building up to 40 minutes. This is also a time you can slowly introduce long reining, ponying, and ground poles. Avoid mechanical horse walkers. 
because they require the horse to move in repetitive circles. While you can walk the horse on gentle slopes, avoid steep hills, tight turns, and deep footing. Um, You want to implement physical therapy activities four to five days a week. Limb-specific stretches can improve the horse's quadriceps, hamstrings, and glutes. Balance pads. Now, I had no idea what a balance pad is, so I had to go look it up. It's kind of cool. Have you seen them? The horse stands on these pads. Yes, they're really cool. Um, Used for five minutes daily, provide micro motion that helps strengthen the joint capsule and builds the horse's proprioception. Laser therapy, used every day for several weeks, four to six ideally, can increase healing. So once the horse's stifle healing is at a suitable point as determined by follow-up examinations, the veterinarian clears the horse to ride to begin the riding program. Um, Before introducing ridden work, you start with... 40 minutes of daily hand walking on a firm surface. At the start of tack walking, the session should be 20 minutes and you build up gradually to 40. Um, The the concept is to reintroduce trot and canter work from the ground before moving to saddle. Um, The trot work should be done by ground driving or on a dry treadmill or while ponying alongside another horse. Starting with short five-minute trot sessions, gradually build to 20. Then incorporate canter work. Um, During week one of canter, one or two laps around the arena in each direction is sufficient, still avoiding tight turns, then increase to five minutes of canter with intermittent trot and walk breaks. You can set up poles for rehabilitating a horse to walk over, set them at related distances that encourage range of motion, inflection, and extension. Over time, increase the number of poles and add height up to 12 inches. Generally, you can introduce sport-specific training such as jumping six to eight months into rehab, depending on the rate of healing. Expect to see some back and forth in terms of progress. Um, Underwater, she recommends underwater treadmills can be added to stifle rehabilitation programs after about two weeks. If the horse needed surgical intervention, daily underwater tread work would start 21 days post-surgery. I I found this particularly interesting about that. Um, And the end of the article is um the vet's quote which is the whole horse approach is invaluable to give the horse the best chances as of success if you're just focusing on the stifle you're going to fail your rehab horses need to be looked at as a big picture and if you just target the stifle injury you will not succeed well that makes perfect sense doesn't it it does but how many times do we just focus on one area right Right. And yeah, especially yeah. if you have a horse that's got an injury and they're stifle, well, they're investigating whether or not the horse has a predisposition to re-injure or have weak stifles. You have to look at the whole horse. What else, what other part of that horse needs to be strengthened so that he is not abnormally stressing his stifle? Was he compensating too much? 
guarding exactly. Else. Yeah, and I I think mm-hmm. I think it's very interesting bringing in the ponying. Yeah, that's something you don't see as you much do of not here in the see US. that. Yeah. You see that more, and you know, polo players do it, but yeah. um, they're not rehabbing necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the ground poles. Mm-hmm. Again, you're yeah, strengthening the-, the whole horse and right. the balance pads. That's really a, a neurospinal connection of reconnecting everything together. I, so the proprioception I, aspect yes. of the balance pads is yes. Fasc- that's a fascinating rabbit it's, hole to go down. It really yes, is. it is. Yeah. So um, I just thought this was worth sharing and really thinking about when a horse injures, it can be the stifle or the tendon or, you know, blows a suspensory. We need to start approaching it from a whole horse perspective, not just I've got a stifle injury or I've got a, mm-hmm. a ligament injury. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and those core building exercises yep. that are low impact, for, at least from my point of view, need to be part of the some horse's training regime regardless Yes. And it's so it's so easy to have a horse that's competing at a at a higher level and forget that, oh, you know, we occasionally need to spend time doing long low work or we just need to spend time walking over ground poles or we need to uh-huh. spend time walking up and down gentle hills and not just practicing the tempies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Right. And I'm, I think I'm, avoiding I'm, the the walker. Was very yeah. interesting because yeah. I think yeah. when you have a walker, that's the first thing you think of is when I'm rehab when you're rehabbing. Well, let's just stick them on the walker for ten minutes. Yeah, well, they and yeah. they all the 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 new high tech Euro walkers that you that are available mm-hmm. nowadays are a little bit different animal. I know there's a farm out in California, um, Flag is Up Farms. They have the giant Euro walker, and it's a What's the word I'm looking for? It's capsule shaped. So it's got to turn a straight to turn in a straight. So the le- total length, less than 30% of, the, of it is turn. Yeah. But they also built it so that they are very gentle undulations in the train as the horse walks. He's gently walking up and down hills. And then you can program it to stop and start. So the horse isn't just being shoved along right. at a same That's pace. Huge. They, can, yeah. they can make it slow and then they can make it fast. They can even make it pause. So, I, I think this idea you know, of putting them in a pen and just having them go around and around in circles is not a good idea. For rate for rehab, it's really not ideal for some no. for a horse that just needs to go out and walk because there's no pastures available. It's better than nothing. I'm curious, Patty. Do yeah. you ever pony any of the horses that you have in training? Is that something you guys do? It is so interesting that you're saying this. Um, I used to do it years and years ago and completely got out of it. And I was just recently thinking, because I have a um, a really incredibly great-brained Lusitano gelding that is um, a year and a half, and he's out with um, an old uh, Appaloosa. I won Appaloosa who um, I-, I was thinking, man, I should. we've got land across the way. I was like, I should pony him. This would be like so much fun to pony him. So I, I haven't done it, re- and a lot of it just because I didn't, wouldn't have, wouldn't have had time to do it before, but I just started thinking about what fun that would be. It is that. fun. And it is. I, I pony yeah. scooter a lot. Our hackney pony being 12 hands. I'm not going to be riding him. There aren't too many human beings in, around here small right. enough to ride him. And he yeah. just loves, loves it. it. 
Just, Did you have to go through any breakthrough period, like where you know where um, the the horse that you were on? Uh, I guess Nigel. Um, he uh, he t- he took to it relatively quickly. I started ponying Scooter with the horse I had previous to Nigel, and he was an old hat. He was an old ranch horse. He understood that whole concept. He was fine with it. But when I got Nigel, they were already pals. They knew each other, and I started out with something really simple. Just have somebody. Hand me the lead rope. I got to get on, walk along. And I write English, so I wasn't dallying him. Um, and we would just walk around the edge of the ring when there was somebody else there to keep an eye on things. And we worked our way up to it. Now I take him out on the trails. We trot around. We go over obstacles. We do all kinds of stuff with him. And it's a great way to give the horse both physical exercise and mental stimulation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you do have to be prepared for it because sometimes thing can, things can get a little bit high energy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, a little bit. So, um, but it is—it's a great thing to give it a go. And if you—if you start ponying your youngster, please, please, please post pictures on the Healthy Critters Radio Facebook page. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if I make it, I will. I had hello. My projection skills are crap because my stupid servant has pneumonia. Oh, <laughs> oh I'm sorry. Going to hear in that. my belly to have volume because she's stupid. <laughs> oh, um, Hedwig. Yes. I've heard, I've heard that pumpkin spice is good for that sort of thing. Like the, the spice girl or. <laughs> it's not that kind of podcast, Hedwig. But as, as like pumpkin latte, pumpkin spice, everything. How do you feel about the whole pumpkin spice flavoring in autumn anyway? Can I just tell you that when she had COVID and we had to get everything through drive through with her wearing 14 layers of masks, this was only like a week ago. <laughs> we went to the Dunkin' Donuts and they had the pumpkin spice munchkins. This is interesting. How unexpected Hedwig appreciates pumpkin spice. What do you think? It's just shocker to me. I would have shoved like 27 of those right up my face. They were amazing. Are you shocked, Patty? Um, A little bit. I didn't think she was going to like it, to tell you. I didn't either. So, yeah. Have you people even tried a pumpkin spice munchkin? Amazing. Well, I think I'm going to try it. No, not me. I think so. (laughs) (laughs) Like, well, she's singing. She's singing. Hedwig, are there other food stuffs you think would would go well with pumpkin spice flavoring in them? I like pumpkin pie a great deal. What was, we didn't hear, we didn't quite hear you. You faded out on us, Hedwig. What was that again? Pumpkin pie. Oh, of uh, oh! I no. love pumpkin pie. Have you ever had unauthorized pumpkin pie, Hedwig? I am <laughs> totally unclear about what you mean by unauthorized. Everything is mine. <laughs> Has your servant ever been perturbed? After finding out that you ate a quantity of pumpkin pie? 
No, she's always grateful that I was there to help out. Oh, I'm sure she was. Yes. <laughs> I like whipped cream on my pie. Oh. <laughs> oh, of course Real you do. whipped cream, not the kind from a jar. No, that's not whipped cream. That's <laughs> cool whip. Yeah. No, <laughs> ready whip, but I don't like it. I like the real type. The real yeah, type. that you have yeah. to actually blend in a blender. With no, real... you have to whip with your arms. So you burn <laughs> calories first, and then you get to watch me eat it. <laughs> well, Something we know what we... you're looking forward to on Thursday. <laughs> I yeah. mean, on Thanksgiving. Uh, we do. Wow. Yeah, pumpkin pie for Hedwig. There we go. So All right. much whipped cream on my pie. <laughs> well, thank you very Good much, it. Hedwig. We will uh, we'll let you get on with your evening, and we appreciate the shocking insight into your yes. pumpkin no spice kidding. munchkin preferences. You should mm-hmm. try them, Jeremy. <laughs> Hope your servant feels better. Whatever. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Real horses and real dogs are healthier, perform better, and recover more quickly on real food. That's why Biostar empowers horse and canine owners with 100% whole food nutrition, supplements, and feeding programs. Biostar products are made at their own certified non-GMO facility in Gordonsville, Virginia, using real fruit ingredients that are raw, freeze-dried, or dehydrated, never cooked, and are free from artificial flavors, colors, soy, corn, wheat, and molasses. The Biostar product line includes a wide range of whole food, horse and dog supplements, treats, and unique artisan poultices that embrace the ancient and traditional uses of clay and plants. Visit BiostarUS.com today and learn about whole foods and canine and equine nutrition so you can make the best decisions about the care and health of your horses and dogs. That's BiostarUS.com. Whole food nutrition the way nature intended. So we're at the critter of the show portion of our program this evening. And part of the reason I decided to do this is because we have so many white-tailed deer here. And this morning I was teaching a PIVO lesson from my car, which, (laughs) um, and I was trying to teach it, but there was about 50 deer in, um, in the, the field around the barn. And, and I'm just like, I just thought to myself, this is a perfect thing to do. I'm going to learn something. And I have to tell you guys, I learned some interesting stuff. Um, Well, okay. So they're called the white-tailed deer. I cannot, for the life of me, pronounce the other, the, the, the real name for it. So I'll let you guys look that up. <laughs> it's also known. For, I mean, I could even, Oda Cochleus Virginian, they, they just figure, look that up and then tell me what it is. Um, so um, Texas is home to, this is interesting, most of the white-tailed deer of any other state in the U.S., including Canada. Interesting almost estimated to be 5 million um, here. I, I saw one that said four, one that said five. I went with five. Um, I believe it because being in Texas and seeing how many are here and in my yard on a daily basis, I agree with that. But they're easily recognized by their signature white tail and their white underbelly. They are the smallest of the North American deer family, and they all live in herds, large, in fact, quite large herds here. Adult deer 
uh, are tan to tannish brown and in the summer, in the summer months and more of a grayish brown in the winter to help with camouflage. Um, this is kind of interesting. Didn't know this deer, like many other mammals don't have a gallbladder, so they can actually eat vegetation, um, that's poisonous to most domestic animals. I did not know that. (laughs) Thought that was kind of cool. Um, I also didn't know they didn't have a gallbladder like most animal uh, mammals. I didn't know that. Um, Bucks. Bucks can weigh anywhere from 130 to 220 pounds. They can reach speeds up to 35 to 40 miles per hour. Kind of cool. Their antler growth is done normally by um, August, which makes their antler growth the quickest and fastest growing of of any of the deer family. Um, And they generally shed their antlers between December and February. So that's you think about that it's say if they do it in february and then they start growing them um by the time they're august that's kind of an interesting tidbit um so fawns which are the babies uh, most fawns are born between may and june um their gestation period is about seven months so most of them will be bred by autumn into really really early winter um, commonly the does will have twins, which we see quite frequently here, but sometimes you'll see triplets, which I thought was neat. Um, fawns can stand up within 20 minutes of birth and it's, and seeing, I, I see lots of fawns all the time. And this year I saw so many that were just born. Um, I came to the barn to do night check one evening and literally this baby, I watched it get up for the first time. And it was about the size of one of my Australian shepherds. It was so tiny. It was just the cutest and just ran right along its mother like it had been doing it its whole life. Well, I guess it had been doing it its whole life, which was kind of cool. Around here, we have an ongoing uh, joke about the moms will hide their babies in backyards, flower beds, anywhere. Well, here at the farm where we're at, they um, consider us some sort of kindergarten care because I will go to ride outside um, and underneath the trees will be one or two baby fawns and they're just very quiet. And it, they're just, they just, they just put them there because they know they're safe because it's a fenced in area. So um, it's very common to see them all over in your backyard it happens all the time, but they'll leave them sometimes up to 12 hours a day, um, which I thought was fascinating. Fawns are born with their own little camouflage. They have adorable white spots. Um, They inherently know that they cannot outrun predators early on in life. So you may sometimes see them around my area kind of drop down in a weird area that they look quite uncomfortable, but they instinctually know to drop down and stay perfectly still. And it's amazing to see it. It's just truly amazing to see it. Um, And they'll stay that way until the potential threat is gone. And as they, um, as they get older and they can start and they are stronger and they can um, uh, start to run better, they actually start to go out with the herd and they will um, very gently lose their spots over about a two or three month period. So I just wanted, I just thought this whole thing was so interesting because we have so many here um, and this time of year um, you start to really see, them um, joyfully playing and it's just the neatest thing in the world I have and I've lived in all places around the country that have had many deer but nothing like here and now that I know why because they apparently all are here but to be able to get up in the 
and look out your window and see how many deer there are and just to see them playing and how interactive they are as a herd. It's really quite wonderful. So I encourage anybody, if they have the opportunity to come to Texas and do some deer watching. Now we're at Critter Nutrition, and uh, this is a little bit different, um, but it's about losing an animal, and I call it walking with grief. Last week, quite unexpectedly, I lost one of my Aussies, Thunder Bear. He was only nine and a half years old. He was diagnosed with a large mass in his spleen, likely hemosarcoma, a highly malignant cancer, and his process due to internal bleeding was poor. Even if he survived surgery, he would need chemotherapy, which would only give him a few weeks or months. We have all faced the heartbreaking decision to put an animal down. I've had to put down other dogs, horses, cats, and it never gets easier. Years ago, I learned a hard lesson when I waited too long to put a cat down because I was not willing or able to let go. I won't do that again. Some of us have lost, lost family members, a child, a spouse, a friend, a parent. We stumble through our days and nights with grief ever at our side. I sat on the floor with Thunder Bear, thanking him, loving him. He went to sleep. His heart stopped. His spirit leapt free. I don't know how I drove home, but when I turned on the car radio, the song that was playing was Sad Eyes by Robert John. Sad eyes, turn the other way. I don't want to see you cry. Sad eyes, you knew there come a day when we would have to say goodbye. Grief is a shadowy companion that walks with us, triggers tears, makes our heart hurt. Grief can feel like a blanket enveloping us in a deep, profound sadness we don't know if we will recover from. When my father passed years ago, I had a revelation about grief and the singular uniqueness of saying goodbye. After my sister and I got the news of our dad's passing, I crawled into bed with her while she sobbed. I thought how grateful I was that he had finally been freed of the terrible condition he was in. I thought about how lucky I was to have him as a father. And I remembered that he would always be with me as I carry him in my heart like a locket. I didn't cry then. It was later that the tears came when I was out in a patch of Arizona desert by myself, just needing to process it all. The grief was a welcomed friend. It has only been a few days since Thunder Bear passed. I see him everywhere. I still go to make up his food bowl and have to stop myself. I call his name with the other dogs and suddenly realize he won't be coming to the back door. Last night, the memory of him lying on the couch with me was so profound. I could almost feel his head on my thigh, the way he inched closer, nudged my hand for more contact, more ear scratches, me telling him what a good boy he was. I wish we had more time together. I wish I could watch him roll in the autumn leaves, stand outside during a snowfall and lick snowflakes, run pell-mell into the pond in summer. 
walk ahead on the paths through the woods and run back to me with a stick so proud of himself. He grins from ear to ear, his tongue lolling out of the side of his mouth. He had an ability to leap from a standstill onto a counter at Biostar to survey the production area or jump onto Biostar's conference table just because he could. Grief spurs memories. Perhaps that's the deepest blessing of grief, remembering. Remembering the little moments forgotten, taken for granted, considered ordinary, but now ever so wonderful and important. And to feel such gratitude, how lucky I was to have this marvelous Aussie dog spirit in my life. Even with the pain of his passing, how rich my life has been with Thunder Bear at my side. As I write this, my eyes water. Grief is with me without judgment, without condemnation. No, hurry up and get over it. I visit the hundreds of photographs I've taken of him, and I feel the gratitude and privilege of spending nine and a half years with him. How poor in spirit I would be if I hadn't known him, learned from him, loved him. Grief is here, the sorrow worth every drop to have loved and been loved by Thunder Bear. And now we're at Coffee Clatch, and our question is, if you could pick a celebrity or famous person to be your small animal vet, who would you choose? Who would you choose, Patty? Well... At first, I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm just like I had so many ideas of like what I was was thinking, like somebody famous. And then it just came to me. I don't know. Okay, Kevin Hart. Kevin Hart. Interesting. (laughs) And the reason being is because he's so afraid of animals. I don't know (laughs) if you guys have ever seen him when he's been like on the I don't know, Jimmy, one of the Jimmy Fallon, whatever, and they'll bring out animals and he like jumps up and runs across and he's legit scared. And I don't know why I just think that would be hysterical. <laughs> Maybe not the right point or the right one, but I think that's it. Yeah. Him. I think him. How about you? <laughs> um, well, I, I, I would like to have George Carlin. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> because he's very intellectual and smart. Right? Oh, yeah. So you would have very the science so. part of it, but then he'd be fun and funny in a non-intimidating yeah. way. So yeah. um I think that would be a good combo. Who the, the first person I thought of in fantasy land was Brad Pitt. And then I thought that's what I would, I would never say anything. I would just be no. St- I'd be like, I'd be so intimidated. Yeah. You'd be girl. <laughs> I, I yeah. just, you know, he could tell me, well, we we need to, uh, we need to jump off a cliff, and you know, I go, okay, no problem. Black yeah, Prince, yeah. Doctor Pitt said, do this. Yeah. <laughs> your dog's going to need one of your legs. Okay, yeah. here's the <laughs> It's so funny. I was going to say Brad Pitt too. I cannot believe you're saying it. I was oh absolutely going to say Brad Pitt. Okay, Jennifer, where are you? Where am I? Um, I want my small animal vet to be Oprah Winfrey. Oh. Because because she can deliver good news and bad news. Mm -hmm. And she's really super Mm -hmm. smart. And every time I took my pet to the vet, I would have a chance of winning my own car. (laughs) I was going to say, hearing about a good book to read. (laughs) I would hear about a good book to read. Yep. Uh Uh-huh. 
Oh yeah, that's good. Oh, that's so, so fun. Who wouldn't you want? Oh, as- who wouldn't I want? Oh, hmm. Katniss Everdeen. Oh. <laughs> yeah, but that's, that's, not that's, a real, that's not a real person. Yeah, that's a I character. Need a real no, person. A- who wouldn't I want? Hmm. Hmm. I wouldn't oh. want Kim Kardashian. Oh my gosh. Oh. <laughs> I wouldn't want Chris Jenner. <laughs> <laughs> nope. I wouldn't want Kanye West. No. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I, I don't want Will Smith because he has anger issues. Yeah. He would. If, he, <laughs> yeah. if your dog did something wrong, he could. Well, I would have slug him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. Good, that's, yeah. A, good <laughs> that's a good one. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's terribly not PC, but. Yeah. As soon as you said that, it's all I think I was like, we're, oh, my gosh, who was the guy that of, hit the other guy on the Oscars? We're kind of not a PC show. No, not not yeah. too much. Yeah. And I wouldn't have Meryl Streep either. Ooh, as, why not? As, as much as I admire her and respect her and think she's the greatest actress of the 20th century. Yeah. Her ability to take on characters would make me. A little distrustful. <gasps> you wouldn't think that you, you, you would think to yourself, is she saying the truth or is she just yeah, acting? Ex- exactly. Oh, I get it. Yeah. Have you ever watched yeah, a this is completely off topic, but have you ever watched a film and you're watching and, and you know the actor really well and they're playing the role and you're thinking to yourself, they're playing that a little too well. And it's a little scary. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Silence of the Lambs. I, oh my god! Those, you know? uh, no, I played that a little too well. I I love Anthony Hopkins, but I wouldn't want him as a vet either. <laughs> no, I don't want. I don't yeah. want to live next to Anthony Hopkins. No, no, no. I I need, I need a vet with a sense of humor. I think that, especially in the rough times, that they can you know show you the, the light. Oprah Winfrey. She's perfect. Yes, she is. But I think George Carlin's perfect too. I think George Carlin's pretty good. Actually, I can see. I think I'm going to go. I'm going back to to Brad Pitt because did you ever, <laughs> did you ever see him in Ocean's Eleven? I'm sorry, I think Brad Pitt's the, the winner here yeah. because he is funny. And also, Brad Pitt would be good because people would actually come to the follow up visits because they would want to go to the vet. Well, that's fact, true. Yeah, they could potentially just want their animals to pr- be pretend sick. You know. <laughs> Munchausen by proxy. There you yeah. go. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing's wrong, but will you just look at my dog? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I wouldn't mind John Cleese either. Who's John uh, Cleese? Monty Python. Monty Python. Oh yeah. That yeah. See, I'm, yeah. I'm 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 yeah. sufficiently uncomfortable around doctors of all types that I don't think I could deal with a John Cleese vet. You mean because he's English? No, just because he would be too much. The sarcasm would not sink well because I just anytime I'm around veterinarians, doctors of any sort, I just get a little, little squeamish. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I get it. Yeah. But I, I would think John Cleese would be quite funny. And can you imagine you come into the the examining room with your horse and you hear. <laughs> the coconuts. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh! I th- we're we're going downhill, ladies and gentlemen. I think it's time to sign off. <laughs> All right, I'm just going to say final. It should be Brad Pitt. <laughs> okay, you win, Brad Pitt. If you have a celebrity that you think should be your small animal veterinarian, you need to tell us about it by going to Healthy Critters Radio on Facebook and posting it there. 
Absolutely. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to our sponsor, Biostar US. You can find them online at biostarus.com. Get the Horse Radio Network phone app on iOS or Android by searching for Horse Radio Network in the App Store. It's free and easy to use. For details about today's show, go to HealthyCrittersRadio.com, where you can find links, photos, and more information about our guests. As always, we love your feedback. Please follow us on Facebook under Healthy Critters Radio. Be sure to visit all the great shows on Horse Radio Network at HorseRadioNetwork.com. Love your dog, hug your horse, feed your chickens, clean your box, dance with your goats, sit with snake, follow the moon, hang with the hamster, party with the parrot, walk with the walrus, help your otter, build your cows, rattle with the raptor, go chill with the chipmunks, forget your fox while hunting your hog. We also recommend you wrap your raccoon, gyrate with your giraffe, meditate with your cat, Uber with your orangutan, Facebook with your flamingo, hunt with your panda, walk with your wookie, yawn with your jack, tear with your chicken, go ring with your reindeer, drop box your dragon. <laughs> 